Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome back to Behind the Knife. We're at day two here in Las Vegas for the Trauma and Acute Care Surgery course, uh, the Dr. Maddox course. And we're very pleased to have uh, Dr. D- Nicholas Nemias, who is the Professor-in-Chief Division of Trauma and Surgical Critical Care, uh, is the Robert Zeppa Endowed Chair in Trauma Surgery at the University of Miami uh, Rider Trauma Center in Miami, Florida. And we're also here with uh, Dr. Sidney Vale, who's the Interim Chair of the Department of Surgery and the Chief and Medical Director of the Division of Trauma Surgery at Maricopa Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us on BTK. Our pleasure. So, uh, Sid, we'll start with you. Set the stage for us. You have a you have somebody who comes through your door that's a that's a kid. That can be a daunting thing, especially for any trainees, and we have a lot of trainees that listen to us. So can you first walk our w- listeners through a little bit about how do you think about these patients, and does it matter? And I'm sure it does, but what do you think about if it's an infant versus a toddler versus somebody who's a little bit further on? I'm going to start with a quote that I gave in the conference and I use quite often. Stress is a matter of perception. Perceptions are changed through the training process. If you are mentally prepared, if you don't take this as it's your first day and all of a sudden there's a toddler coming into your trauma room that you become responsible for, which is unnerving. I mean, plain and simple. Most people have the impression that we take care of adults. No, we take care of anybody who walks through our door. So it really becomes a task of self-learning, self-motivation, self-education, if you will, to not feel the stress of having a young kid come through your doors and become your patient. Reading, learning, using resources, you know, at least for us, it's, we have a pediatric emergency physician who comes to our traumas. We have a PICU attending who comes to our traumas. So we have resources. Um, I mentioned we have these cards that are all over the place that are put out by our pediatric center that give doses of every single medication, every ET tube, every chest tube, you name it. They have a card indicator on that so that you have some kind of reference So being prepared with the references, being prepared with the resources really enables you to have a lower stress, a lower sphincter tone when it comes to taking care of a kid, and you just look at it as one heck of a good challenge. Dr. Nemias, for the kids specifically, you tend to have a lot more of an emotional component when they come in, especially when they're very injured or if it's a non-accidental trauma. Um, we spoke briefly about that in the panel discussion yesterday. Can you kind of think of or discuss with us ways you can avoid that emotional issues? Sure. Um, we do a few things, and if you're, if you're in a center that accepts pediatric <clears throat> patients, you should probably be prepared to provide some of that support. So some of the things that we do are we have one specific trauma bay actually set up to be a more comfortable environment. It doesn't look as sterile as medical. It's got pediatric decorations. It's got furniture for the parents to sit. And depending on the injury, you can let the parents right in the room with you. And as a matter of fact, if I get a pediatric burn, it's not life-threatening. Um, I will, and sometimes I'll walk in with the mother holding the child. I will have the mother get into the stretcher and hold the child and actually do the wound care with the baby in the mother's arms when the mother can handle it. Sometimes they're the rate-limiting step. Uh, We have uh, staff come down as part of the trauma alert from the pediatric ICU as well, and they have additional training and and really the the personality 
for that emotional support for the family. Social worker will pull the family aside and provide them support in the situation where there's so much medical intervention going on that the family can't be right there in the bed with the patient. So, you, you know, you, you adjust a little bit. And I think also the staff, everyone relates to children better. I mean, the, we really don't have uh, anyone who can look at a child and not just provide that extra little touch of warmth. So, uh, Dr. Vale, we hear all the time, you know, uh, kids aren't just little adults. When it comes to approach, approaching um, pediatric trauma, what are some important principles when first approaching that patient, especially if you're concerned that they might have, you know, a significant uh, solid or- organ injury um, or significant injury? What's important about their physiology and the presentation and how to approach that patient? It comes down to having a high level of concern. Um, you have to remember that kids compensate really, really well, and they can hide things. Um, we're used to an adult being able to tell you things. You may not be able to depend on a child telling you anything, whether something hurts, whether something's getting worse during your resuscitation. So having that high level of concern, um, being very aware, your situational awareness of the whole room, watch the child, pay attention to their movements, or not moving, pay attention to their interactions, and then do your physical exam as you would and follow up with whatever, your fast exam, ultrasound, or um, any x-rays, but have a high level of suspicion for kids. With us, it's always expect the worst, hope for the best, but plan that every child comes in has a injury or problem that is life-threatening. Then work it backwards to say, nope, we can relax now. Any guiding principles for us? So what's going through your mind, for example, if you see a child and he or she is hypotensive or uh, any kind of hallmarks or benchmarks that we should definitely keep in the back of our mind as we're assessing these patients? Well, again, the compensation, a child can lose 45% of their blood volume before you start to see that compensation. Unlike an adult where you lose 10% of a blood volume, they might get hypotensive or tachycardic. Kids fall off that ridge, if you will, so fast. One of the things that we worry about is if you start off with a hypotensive child, a child in shock, first of all, you got to know what their normal blood pressure and pulse is for their age. Again, having those reference cards. But if they come in hypotensive, you have to have that level of concern, that level of, I'll use the term anxiety for some people, to know that you have to come up with that diagnosis even faster. But you also have to sometimes, you know, tick off the box for your massive transfusion protocol, tick off the box for certain medications, get them intubated, get them maybe to an operating room or somewhere. Maybe you have to expedite that a little faster than with an adult. So let's talk a little bit first about, um, before we get to the operating room, or the management of specific injuries in, in the pediatric population. One of the big stressors is imaging. In an adult, we'll take somebody through and run them through the CAT scan, and it's that. In a kid, that's not so simple. Do you sedate them? What, what do you do? Who, who needs imaging? The parents are stressed out about, what, what am I going to do about the CT scan? Is it radiating my baby or whatever? Um, how do you decide in terms of what, um, do you use ultrasound more often? How do you decide and deal with a kid who you think needs a CAT scan, but they're, will, you, will you intubate them? Will you give them sedation? How do you work through that process? It, it really varies uh, by the patient. Of course, we do want to avoid doing uh, CAT scans in children if we can, as we should be wanting to avoid doing them in anybody if we can. But there are some compelling data, at least in adults, that, that almost routinely CAT scanning major trauma can reduce mortality. So everyone has tended to do more CAT scans than less. Uh, 
Uh, with children, we rely on some markers that probably aren't well validated. So we will uh, look at uh, the physical exam, which of course I suppose is as validated as it can be. But we'll look at other things. We'll take into account an ultrasound. We'll take into account transaminases. Uh, we'll take into account a serum amylase. Uh, and if the patient is stable and doesn't have to be run off to somewhere, our pediatric surgeons uh, have worked out this protocol with us where they'll look at those labs in the ultrasound to determine who needs to have further imaging. We're much more likely to just go ahead and admit them and observe them than to CAT scan them if it can be um, possibly done. Uh, additionally, our radiologists use all the protocols for minimizing radiation to children. So we do really try to avoid it, I think, as everyone does now. So what about this patient? So there's, you know, there's obviously a trend in, in adult trauma population with uh, going towards more and more non-operative management of solid organ injuries. Is, is that the same for kids? Um, and what I can imagine that's, that's a very, when you're trying to decide whether or not to take a kid to the operating room for you know, a splenic laceration or for a, a liver laceration, how do you determine who needs to go to the OR, who needs to go to IR, and what are your trigger points for going to the operating room? Kids led the way in that. I mean, the, all the non-operative management started with the kids. Uh, it's, it's now actually a, a mark against you if you take out a child's spleen. So, you know, unless a child becomes hemodynamically, hemodynamically unstable from a solid organ injury, you just don't operate, and they tend to do fine. Any trigger points as far as transfusion requirement for, you know, splenic lacerations before you take them to the operating room? No, I think we'd actually rather transfuse a child a little bit before taking them to the operating room. So it, it, even, even in that situation, you try to avoid taking them at all. Uh, Dr. Farrell, anything to add there regarding, uh, you know, the non-operative management of pediatrics? Two things. Number one, like Dr. Dr. Namias just said, we'll transfuse up uh, to the point of trying to not operate, uh, especially with kids. And you know what? We do that with adults to a certain degree. But one of the other things that you have to be cognizant of is adults have the way to communicate far beyond what a child does. So we tend to discharge a lot of adults. We just did a study, and I believe it just got published, on seatbelt signs. And we looked at adults and kids. We took two, the two cohorts and compared them, and adults with a seatbelt sign with a negative scan, negative exam, could go home safely. The same was not true for kids, even with negative scans and ultrasounds. Uh, I think it was a, I'm going to misquote this, but a certain high percentage of kids developed a delayed finding that required operative intervention. We had bucket handle deformities that you didn't see before. We had perforations we didn't see before. And again, you expect these kids to show you up front something is wrong, and they didn't. Mm -hmm. But we admit 100% of our seatbelt signs now in kids. So there's another oddity that you don't think of. Mm -hmm. So everybody was like, ah, scan's fine, send them home. No, admit all those kids. So that's a big difference. Uh, Dr. Bell, you talked a little bit about, uh, or you talked quite a bit about damage control resuscitation in, in children. Um, what are some, A, just some general guiding principles of do, doing a damage control resuscitation on, on child, and what's kind of on the forefront when it comes to that? Like I said in the lecture, damage control needs to be thought about for 100% and then figure out who actually doesn't need it because you don't want to be behind the eight ball. When the kid starts to go downhill, you want to be proactive, not reactive. Better outcomes, lower morbidity, lower mortalities have been proven in the pediatric literature. The faster you get to damage control, the better the kid does. 
So with that in mind, you always want to be thinking to do it and then figure out who you don't have to do it. But it's the same principles as an adult. You're going to resuscitate. You're going to operate. You're going to do the damage control strategies in the operating room. You're going to stop doing what you're doing at some point to get the kid, you know, with a temporary abdominal closure back to the PICU, resuscitate them, and then plan to bring back. Um, for both of you, are you using uh, protocolized-driven resuscitations, or are either of you using um, TEG, Rotem, um, in guiding those resuscitations? I've been begging for a TEG for a long time. I still don't have it, so not yet. We have TEG uh, available for trauma resuscitation, but the reality in the trauma resuscitation uh, bay is that everything is moving so fast that by the time a TEG gives you any useful information, the patient has changed. So we found our use for TEG really is in the ICU afterwards, not when they're acutely bleeding. Dr. Nemias, one of the things you talked about yesterday was TBI. So let's talk a little bit about TBI in kids and you know, as a part of that, if you can also touch on how do you treat, if at all, differently the, the person who has a solid organ injury in, uh, in the abdomen and also has associated head bleed. What, does that change your management at all? Well, it has to. So. You know, the, the issue there, of course, is secondary brain injury, and one episode of hypotension increases the mortality from a traumatic brain injury. Uh, fortunately, we are blessed with a pediatric surgery service who actually ends up making these decisions, but certainly in the adults, we are more likely to take out the spleen in the brain-injured patient than in the non-brain-injured patient because you can't, there's no margin for error. Uh, having said that, it's really uh, tricky in the kids because you're trying to preserve the spleen. You also want a bad outcome from the traumatic brain injury. My topic yesterday was severe traumatic brain injury with a, a GCS between 3 and 8. That's the definition. And, and uh, as I mentioned yesterday, thankfully, there really are very few of those in the country every year. When you average it out by state, it's something like 112 in each state each year. So I think it's going to be really hard to come by data to suggest in the pediatric-specific population whether or not you should go ahead and operate. Um, I think that what will happen in reality is you will have a lower threshold to go ahead and operate in the brain-injured child than in the non-brain-injured child, but I don't think anybody can back that up with solid data. So, Dr. Nmaias, you had mentioned the severely head-injured pediatric patient. Uh, are there any considerations for adjuncts like hypertonic saline, or, or what are you thinking about in terms of ICP and CPP goals, uh, are they different in kids and adults? The Brain Trauma Foundation has a guidelines paper for children, and unfortunately the uh, guidelines are, make recommendations that are mostly level 3, and the best recommendation is a level 2. There are no level 1 recommendations. Uh, of course, we'd like to use osmotherapy, but again, that there's only level uh, 3 recommendation for hypertonic saline. There's no recommendation for or against mannitol. So I think in reality what's going to end up happening is you're going to use the things that you use based on your local expertise, your neurosurgeons, and what they prefer based on their interpretation of the literature. Uh, again, no guideline for mannitol. There is a level 2 recommendation for one dose of hypertonic saline, a level 3 recommendation for another dose of hypertonic saline. So what do you do with that? You just have to trust your neurosurgeon. The, the goal uh, pressures... For ICP, there's a recommendation that you can consider treating if the ICP reaches 20, and there's a recommendation that the CPP should be at 40 to 50, which is different than the adult guideline, which is over 60. So there are differences. So 
we talked a lot about transfusion and, you know, the, the emphasis on children to try to avoid the operating room if possible. Can you talk a little bit, is there a difference between the pediatric population and the adult population in terms of the type of transfusion? Are there any adjuncts? Does TXA have a role in kids? Uh, is there warm blood uh, transfusion in kids? Are we typically component therapy? What, what is that, uh, and if any differences at all? So in the United States, of course, it really is still component therapy because whole blood just isn't widely available, if available at all, if it's available anywhere. Um, I, I actually contacted my blood bank yesterday to tell them we need to establish a pediatric massive transfusion protocol uh, because we don't have one. Uh, but um, there's no separate information to guide us in a separate ratios, separate components. So what we're going to do is just scale down our adult massive transfusion protocol to a weight-based transfusion protocol with the same ratios. You know, early plasma, uh, try to get early cryoprecipitate, you know, packed red cells coming in waves of coolers with the predefined ratios. Dr. Vail, is that uh, similar to your, to your practice? Yeah, we developed a massive transfusion protocol for peds years ago, and it was exactly as Dr. Namaya said. It's all weight-based. The coolers come in an interesting fashion because everything looks so different because it's aliquots per kilogram or milliliters per kilogram, excuse me. Um, but what has to happen is no one can get too quick on the trigger because they start to transfuse large volumes. And you have to remember with that child... All these aliquots of cryo, plasma, blood, platelets are adding up to volume. Well, sometimes that volume's okay, but sometimes that volume is not, depending on the size of the child. And if somebody gets a little aggressive and starts, like I said, to give the whole unit, that cannot be good for the kid. And are either of you using TXA in children? No and no. Okay. I didn't realize that was two questions. Uh, we are using TXA selectively, but not in children. At our center, we have uh, a substantial amount of evidence that there are differences in tranexamic acid for the adult population, uh, whether the injury is penetrating or blunt, whether there's access to an operating room or in transfusion. So we are selective with our tranexamic acid in adults, and we don't use it in children. Okay. I'm going to f- follow up on that. Uh, my no and no was adults and children so we are some of my partners are using it but again look at the data you have to understand it's just like zygris the data is incomplete and how many times did i use zygris in my entire career that would be zero it is a potential for morbidity that we don't know about yet and unfortunately what we're fighting is they're giving it in the field it's been approved for field use and the guidelines are not strict enough so we're getting a lot of patients who are receiving the medication and it's not indicated. Are they having higher rates of DVTs? Well, we do surveillance, so we have the highest rate of DVT in the state because we're surveilling every patient we have uh, at moderate and high risk. So we're finding these things. Now, I can't tell you it's a one-to-one correlation, but what I can tell you is we don't have enough information to know that using it is safe. So final question for both of you. Um, what What would you say is the biggest unanswered question Uh, in pediatric trauma resuscitation right now that you think will be answered within the next five years? It does not need to be done by a person who had a fellowship training in pediatric surgery. I think the biggest issue is going to be taking the things that we've learned in adults about minimizing crystalloids and using massive transfusion protocols and having blood-based 
hemostatic resuscitation will have to be translated to kids because the studies are lacking in kids, and it's so important. Well, excellent. Dr. Namayas, Dr. Vial, thank you so much for being with us uh, here at the Trauma, Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery 2018 meeting in Las Vegas. At the, thanks for being with us Behind the Knife. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, so back uh, with another episode here at um, uh, at Las Vegas for the uh, acute care surgery and the trauma conference, the Maddox course. Very happy to have Dr. Elizabeth Benjamin, who is assistant professor of clinical surgery at Keck School of Medicine, uh, one of the trauma surgeons, uh, acute care surgeons at uh, LA County. Also, um, Professor of Surgery Jay Johannigman uh, at the University of Cincinnati, and uh, we just found out has uh, been HPSB for over 30 years um, as uh, Air Force Reserve. Um, so, uh, welcome both, and thanks so much for joining us at um, Behind the Knife. Uh, Elizabeth, we'll start with you. You had a really good talk about tips and tricks about howling to deal with uh, the GE junction injuries. Can you tell our listeners out there a little bit about you know just your generalized approach and maybe some of the pearls and pitfalls with that? Sure. GE junction injuries in general are, uh, they're scary injuries for everybody. Uh, The most important thing, I think, is to have a good idea before you get in there of how you would handle these injuries. Uh, The anatomy of that area uh, is very straightforward, but it's not something people deal with on a daily basis. So it's important to, you know, to think about it and make sure you have kind of a few tools in your your toolbox of how you're going to approach that, uh, dissect that area out, and then how you're going to deal with the injuries. So uh, there's a lot of different things that can really help you out uh, in this. Uh, the most important thing is going to be exposure. Uh, you know, like I said in my talk, the uh, everybody's used to this beautiful picture of the hiatus from the laparoscope, um, and it seems like it should be so easy to get at, and people get frustrated when it's not. Uh, but our patients are much bigger. It's uh, it's really deep down in there, and a lot of times people's uh, people's rib cage is really angled, so it makes it hard to uh, it's hard to really get at that area. It's very high and deep, so you really want to make sure to get that patient in reverse Trendelenburg, have really good lighting, uh, good uh, good retraction, and make sure your incisions are adequate. This is not the time to be cute with small incisions. So big incisions and get a nice exposure. You have to take down that left lobe of the liver, and then that really does open up that diaphragmatic hiatus for you. And tips for getting it, you know, kind of how you get around the esophagus, uh, what do you use for retraction, how do you identify your injury, um, what are some tips there? Yeah, so in true trauma surgeon fashion, I use my hands uh, for most of it. Uh, I try to get through the uh, through the peritoneum uh, first because that can be a little bit tough to get through. But I try not to use any heat around the esophagus. I don't want to create any injury bigger than the one I'm already dealing with. And then I know I have a lot of things around there. I don't want to get into the aorta. I don't want to create any other injuries. So I really use my finger. You can bluntly dissect on the, both lateral sides of the esophagus in between the, the diaphragmatic uh, cruise and the esophageal uh, lateral border. And once you get both sides uh, nicely dissected uh, bluntly, you can really hook underneath nicely. Uh, It's always helpful if your uh, anesthesiology colleagues have an NG tube or something down, uh, because that'll help you uh, sort of feel the lumen. But even without that, you can really feel it with your hands. But something you want to be doing with your hands. You want to get your hands in there. And if you need more exposure up into the chest, do you have any tips there? Yeah, for sure. If you need more exposure up into the chest, you're going to want to, the first first maneuver you're going to want to do is divide the diaphragm pragmatic uh, cruise. Uh, you do that at a two o'clock position. Uh, that's a very easy maneuver to do. That'll give you an extra five to six centimeters of esophagus up into the chest. Uh, if that is not sufficient, uh, you can do a low left thoracotomy. 
feels like a big deal because you're doing an additional incision, right. but it gives you a beautiful exposure. You can divide the diaphragm and really connect those two exposures and you get a nice view. Okay. And can you tell me how you deal with all, uh, let's go to situations. Let's say you have a, um, a stab wound with, you know, clean edges, or let's say you have a gunshot wound with devitalized edges. How do you, how do you approach those? How do you repair those? Yeah. So stab wound with clean edges, those are your nice injuries, right? You don't have to do a lot of debridement. Uh, usually the edges are nice and healthy. You can put them together. The key thing I'll say with those though, is that even with those stab wounds, those small holes, you, you need to get that mucosa together. So the mucosa really has a habit of retracting back on you and you feel like you've got it but you don't so you have to make sure first of all that you have your posterior you don't their injury doesn't go through and through so you want to make sure you don't have a posterior hole and you want to see your mucosa so if you need to you open the esophagus longitudinally in order to truly see the the extent of the mucosal injury um gunshot wounds any sort of higher velocity than you know just a stab wound you're really going to have to worry about uh the edges you want to make sure that you don't have something that looks sort of okay maybe a little ratty and you put that together and a week later that's necrosed and you have a breakdown of your of your repair so you want to make sure to trim off all of the ratty edges uh before you do your repair and are you repairing these over bougie are you buttressing if so what are you buttressing with um and then do you reinforce with a wrap yeah, so uh, I like to do a, two, a two-layered repair for sure. You get the mucosa in that first layer, and then you do a second layer on top. You always do want to make sure not to narrow, like you mentioned. Uh, over an NG tube, over a bougie, either one, if you've got them available, are great. You always want to cover it with something, uh, especially if you have an associated vascular injury. You want to basically make it separate from that. Uh, you don't. The worst thing in the world, obviously, is to have a fistula. So uh, you want to separate it from the rest of the world, keep that, uh, that repair, that anastomosis on its own. Uh, you can use a variety of things in the abdomen. Uh, I like to use the fundus of the stomach. It's easy. It's there. It's asking for it. Uh, most of the time you've already done a bunch of the dissection. You can just put a little piece of the stomach, uh, on top, wrap it around. Uh, also if the patient has ample momentum, you can bring that up as well. You want to make sure to not, uh, sort of, um, what's the right word? Not like dent in, you know, not constrict the, uh, the area of your, of your repair with the omentum if it's too, uh, too chunky, but you can definitely use the omentum, uh, to help you out there. Uh, and then if you're in the chest, uh, the pleural flap works great. You just need to make sure you have a good viable long strip of pleura that you can wrap around it. Also, uh, intercostal flap is really nice, uh, as well. It's a little bit, uh, more of a commitment, uh, time-wise. So if, uh, your patient's not doing great, you might not be able to do that. Uh, other things you can do is you can take a wedge out of the diaphragm, close it, uh, close those two ends back together, and then lift that up, uh, use that to cover the esophagus. Uh, a bunch of other things described, but those will usually cover you. So on that point about if your patient's not doing great, what's going through your mind if your patient's unstable? Yeah, you want to get in and out as quickly as possible. Um, it's a, you know it's really a balance uh, in these types of situations. You want uh, in and out of the operating room as quickly as possible. We're taught all this stuff, damage control, obviously. But um, but on the flip side, you also have to remember these injuries, hollow viscous injuries. Same with you know uh, stapling off intestine in a damage control situation. It's going to be much harder to fix it later. So once you go back, you worry about uh, the the lumens get dilated, the the tissue gets 
it's edematous. It's not going to hold your suture as well. Uh, you know, there's some great pictures in some of the lectures from yesterday about like saponification after you have, you know, pancreatic injury. All these things make the tissues really unpleasant to sew on the take back. And uh, so you really want to do what you can in an expeditious fashion uh, in that initial operation. Uh, but for sure, if the patient is dying in front of you, uh, a live patient is the goal. Get them out of the operating room uh, and temporize the injuries as best as possible. The one other point I will make also, though, is with these injuries, almost always penetrating injuries, you're going to have associated vascular or bleeding injuries. Deal with those injuries first. The esophagus staring at you open is extremely distracting. It does not seem natural when you see it in the operating room. Don't get distracted by that. Fix the other stuff first. Make sure that your life-threatening injuries are dealt with first, and then go back to the esophagus. Uh, in your talk, you gave a very nice description of uh, if you have a devitalized portion and you have to do a resection and, a, and an anastomosis with an EEA stapler. When you're doing those, how are you managing the vagus nerve? Are you preserving those, um, and or do you have to do a? Are you having to do a drainage procedure with those procedures? You know, it, it de- sort of depends on what your situation is. Uh, you do what you can. You obviously want to preserve the vagus nerve if you can, but in a lot of these situations, you can't. Uh, and then uh, you sort of go from there based on that. Okay. Are you doing are you doing uh, drainage procedures, pyloroplasties? Or are you doing those later? Not really. No. Okay. With that, we'll move on to uh, Dr. Johanneman. Uh, you gave a very great talk on dealing with uh, with the portal triad injuries and specifically the portal vein, which is a nightmare situation for a lot of general surgeons out there. Um, these injuries often happen to very sick, uh, very severely injured patients, and it's often in the middle of the night. What kind of advice and tips can you give for the general surgeon on there on how to deal with these injuries when they're uh, approached with them? Right. So I think they're rare. You looked at those four series we presented, and even for large institutions, they accumulate 20 cases over 25 years. So you probably will see one or two in your career or for the military surgeons here who are dealing with a little bit higher velocity rounds in, in, in the civilian trauma setting, you may see them. What I took away from it, though, is Hogarth Pringle 100 years ago managed to keep these patients alive. So we probably can as well. But it's that recognition. It's the portal vein, the portal vein, the portal vein. So this is simply about getting venous hemorrhage control as rapidly as possible. They don't bleed to death from the artery, and nobody dies from biliary tree ligation. So your focus is stopping the hemorrhage. And I think now, with that shunt analogy, I think all the young surgeons, you know, I look back, I don't think we're we're training vascular surgery open competency the way we used to, but in turn... The maneuver and the things that you can manage with simply a shunt, if done correctly and timely and and, in the proper fashion, is a breathtaking maneuver I wish I had been taught instead of being taught necessarily in in, in reverse saphenous vein graft. So if I was where you all are right now, the skill set I absolutely want to know is shunts, when, where, how, why, what the options are, what the pitfalls are. And I'm going to be a little less worried about I can't do that fem-pop reverse saphenous vein graft. Now, we've had people in the podcast before talk about placing shunts before in vascular surgeons. As a general surgeon and a trauma surgeon, how, what kind of pitfalls do you run into, especially in the emergency situations that uh, either before or after the operation or during or after the operation? Number one, unwillingness to do so. It's amazing, and I'm a generation different than you, but the amount of resistance we had from vascular surgeons who tell me that they can do that anastomosis in a couple hours anyway, why shunt that? 
and again, as part of our military legacy, we have to look at our own Colonel Todd Rasmussen, who has a beautiful model of porcine uh, ischemia reperfusion in tourniquets. The assumption that you have six hours before you have irreversible injury has now been demonstrated to be incorrect. Todd's work shows that if you, the animal goes down ischemic when you put the tourniquet on, you have 60 minutes or less. And how many of us see that patient, the gunshot wound, who got shot through the leg, then ran for their life and arrives ischemic? So the first thing I think we should do is commit to shunt and commit to shunting early. And then if the worst injury, I mean, the worst thing I did is put in a shunt when I could have done something more expeditious, I'll take that versus not shunting the patient, prolonged ischemia, irreversible damage. So, But shunting a portal vein is no more difficult than shunting a femoral vein. It's a simple, straightforward maneuver. But that's what I took away for, for, from preparing for this lecture. It's going to be the vein that's going to kill them. So one of the things you briefly touched on that's worth saying is role of anticoagulation filing in the placement of a shunt. And then you had mentioned two other brief things about, and, and just very briefly, um, how do you deal with the artery and when you have an arterial and a vein and, uh, and then the, uh, the bile duct? Perfect. So first of all, Anticoagulation. The nice thing about this, peripherally with the legs and the arms, anticoagulation is usually not necessary because the patients come to a degree anticoagulated. But if you think about the anatomy of this, because it's portal vein and it's just away from the central venous return to the heart, there's going to be a huge negative pressure gradient across that and the gut's going to want to decompress. So it's going to be an exceedingly high flow uh, situation. The reason you're, that your shunts fail you is because of low flow or distal downstream obstruction. That shouldn't be the case. So the necessity of anticoagulating this, even with a patient who is not coagulopathic, I wouldn't anticipate that you need to do. Um, managing the artery is, we've been taught, even in my years of training, we were taught that since the liver normally is in 80-20 proposition, you can go ahead and ligate the artery and continue with portal vein flow. And as Reese paper showed, there's two in the triad, obviously two vascular structures in the biliary tree. You can take one of the two vascular structures, you just can't take them both. If the injury is primarily hepatic artery, take the artery, leave the vein intact. If you have artery and vein, save the vein, ligate the artery. And then finally, the biliary tree, you know, there's so many different options. It's like, it's like uh, temporarily, uh, uh, ligating the small bowel in continuity. If you're going to take the duct and you're going to interrupt it and you're going to just leave it ligated, then you may want to think about some ways to decompress the biliary tree temporarily. Pediatric feeding tubes are a great way to be able to vent. That buys you additional time. Um, but you're going to be back in there in that setting within 48 hours, and that's not going to cause great havoc. The uh, One of the things that you brought up during your talk, or I think maybe it was a question, uh, is dealing with the, uh, the peripancreatic portal vein, and that's like one of the things you think of as a surgeon, one of the most difficult things to do. Uh, do you have any you know, tips or anything like that, how you would deal with something like that? Yeah, well, so as you know from doing that Whipple procedure, that's, that's, yeah. you're right talking about the juncture 
of the mesenteric veins, the splenic vein, and then being the true portal vein itself. But being underneath the pancreas as it is, I have found in those occasions when either during elective whipples, when you, when you did get in there inadvertently, the first maneuver is compression against the retroperitoneum and get your wits about you and find your time. And I do think this is one of the most difficult anatomic places to be. This is no place to keep on, just like some other injuries, don't roll it up, roll it up, and roll it up. Put it back down where it belonged. You will be able to readily get venous compression hemorrhage with that because it's not a high-pressure system. And then figure out how you're going to get yourself out of trouble with the least hemorrhage involved. Okay, so to wind it up, we'll put you both on the spot. What is something 20 years from now we're going to look back and say, oh, my God, I can't believe we did that in trauma? And then what is something, what do you think is the next great thing coming out in trauma? Uh, ED thoracotomy, I think will become a thing of the past as the Reboa balloon becomes more sophisticated with less peripheral arterial complications. And I think the thing that I'm most anxious to see, and I'm so glad you guys are doing some of the investigatory work, I think the Reboa balloon that has a modulated rather than an all or nothing. I think that no. if, even 10 years from now, I'm going to have a Reboa balloon that's, and I can dial in my pressure ratio. I want a four to one pressure ratio, a five to one or whatever. I think that's going to be a paradigm shifter. I think that uh, I'll disagree with you a little bit. Uh, just in the ED thoracotomy world, I think that there's always going to be a role for that. I think that penetrating trauma to the chest and those patients that die, um, I think that that's a skill that uh, we need to make sure that we uh, we maintain. Uh, I think that uh, maybe fewer, for sure, but uh, but I think that uh, there will always be a role for that. Uh, one of the things that I'm most excited about uh, are these uh, retrohepatic cable balloons. Uh, that's an injury that a lot of times patients come in uh, super sick, but not dead. Uh, and uh, in, in my mind, if somebody comes in not dead, I've, I feel like we need to be able to fix them. And getting to that area quickly uh, is not something that people do on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, and it can take some time for sure. So I think the idea of being able to have a double balloon above and below in the retrohepatic cava uh, will be a game changer, especially for uh, superhepatic IVC control. Uh, to have that, because I think that is uh, a point of that sort of vascular isolation of the liver that really stops people up. Awesome. That was excellent. Uh, Dr. Johanneman, Dr. Benjamin, thank you very much for being with us today on Behind the Knife. Until next time, dominate the day.